so it's just another syllabus journal entry. We're doing women leading America's intelligentsia. We're looking at some of the powerhouses of within academia and journalism, within the, the larger think tank apparatus of American society. We're looking, we're looking at those um, co contributors who are women who have the most to offer, who have the, the heaviest hitting track record of reporting on subjects that no one else wants to talk about. So, welcome back. Welcome back again. We have just another wonderful introduction here of our of our series, uh, elite journalism and uh, women leading America's intelligentsia. And we have just this fascinating part on the episode with Clay and Buck. It's the Clay and Buck show. Buck Sexton and Clay, of course, you guys all know the Daily Review, and they're going to do the just interesting discussion here. It's just a little catch up interview with Liz Wheeler, and of course. We're going to put her forward because her, her hard-hitting discussion and, and journalism on some of these matters. And, of course, this isn't rating. We're not rating the ranking of these outstanding, meritorious journalist uh, exemplars. We're just here, here to uh, ultimately find the ones who are really on the cutting edge and just bring them forward. And there's many more, many, many more that we want to add here as we get time. And we thank, we thank you for uh, following up and listening with us today. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Buck Sexton Show. We have a fantastic guest for you on this one. Very exciting. Liz Wheeler, the host of the Liz Wheeler Show, is with us now. And we've got a lot of things to talk about, Liz. The country uh, needs our help. I think we got to save America. How are you doing? Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, J6, let's start with that. Because as you and I both saw, there's this footage that Tucker and his team over at Fox are releasing in pieces. I, for me, my, my top line on this was, I thought, I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote an op-ed a couple of, what was it now, a couple of years ago, saying that anyone who says January 6th was an insurrection is an idiot. And that's coming from somebody who kind of studied insurrections and coups in the intelligence world, so I have some, some sense of what an insurrection looks like. And that was the actual title, anyone who calls it an insurrection is an idiot. And people were like, yeah, that's right. So it didn't, there was nothing that changed my mind about it. I just felt like we're seeing even more that they called this an attempt to overthrow the United States government. And there's all these people who are just walking around, like, calmly chatting with cops and being friendly and respectful, apart from the vandals and the people. There were some people who were doing the bad stuff. But this is not how a coup happened. No, I mean, I, I would take it even one step further now. Maybe the second installment of your op-ed says that anybody who anybody who perpetuated the myth, the falsehood that this was an insurrection, should um, should should be banished from at least public commentary because it's not just idiotic. You're not just stupid if you fell for this. This was an outright lie. I mean, this was information warfare that bureaucrats and elected officials in the United States government, people who are supposed to represent us waged against us 
They told us deliberate lies, knowing information that contradicted their lies, but knowing that we didn't have the information to directly contradict. I mean, the, the Brian Sicknick video that Tucker played is probably the best example of this. The whole narrative that this was a deadly insurrection, that, that people died, that these Trump supporters murdered police officers was false. And they knew it was false. They knew that the, the, the man, Brian Sickness, this police officer who died a couple of days later of natural causes, was not murdered by Trump supporters who broke into the Capitol. They had accessed that tape. That was the jaw-dropping moment for me, Buck, when I was watching this Tucker investigation, is they can see on the Capitol computers who else has viewed particular moments on this tape, and other people had already viewed this, meaning the January 6th committee knew they were lying and lied anyway because you and I didn't have the this video footage to disprove them. And there's also this this part of me that as this all comes out, um, they lied and, and were completely unrepentant about it with the Russia collusion stuff, too. I mean, at this point, you have to wonder, why would anyone believe any major allegation of Democrats like, say, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Schumer and, and all the rest they still go about their days acting like they didn't fabricate it. Really, what was a, a crazy story? I mean, it wasn't just false, which it obviously was about Trump working with the Kremlin and stealing the election and all this stuff in 2016. It was an insane story. It didn't make any sense from the beginning. And yet now we see those people have created a narrative of, oh, well, you guys tried to overthrow the government? No honest person can look at those videos and think, this was an attempt to overthrow the United States government. Like, that's just a, that's a crazy thing to say. Well, it's, it's of course crazy. And it's like the psychological experiment, the thought experiment of people who lie. Do they know that they're lying after they've told the lie the first, the second, and the third time? Or do they actually start believing their lie and thus just become peddlers of delusion? I have no idea when it comes to Adam Schiff. He seems both dishonest and dogmatic. Maybe he believes the lies that he has invented, just like maybe Liz Cheney believes the lies that she's invented when it comes to the January 6th committee. Um, and, and the narrative that they tried to paint in prime time produced by a former, what was it, an NBC producer telling the American people that this was an attempt to overthrow the government. It clearly was not. These people were looking for a constitutional remedy. But that's the part that always gets me about this. When the left says, oh, Trump was talking to his lawyers, was reading briefs from different people trying to figure out if there was a way that he could stop the certification of the Electoral College. You can argue that there was something he could do, or you can argue in good faith that there wasn't anything that he can do. But the fact of the matter is, is he was trying to wiggle around within the bounds of the Constitution to find a way to delay the certification until he could investigate what more thoroughly what happened in the 2020 election. And it's funny to me. It's the same thing with January 6th. It's funny to me when these people say, oh, they were trying to violently overthrow the government no, they weren't. They were trying to work within the bounds, except for, you know, the, the few hooligans that committed vandalism, and that was wrong. Most people were peacefully protesting, exercising their right to peaceable assembly in order to uh, redress grievances with the federal government, which is codified into our founding documents. I, I don't ever like to engage in uh, exaggeration because when I say something that's really forceful, I want everyone who hears it, who you know listens to me, to know that I, I really mean it, right? And I, I try to keep that in mind, yeah. doing radio or you know, even doing a, a podcast like I am now. But to me, uh, certainly for any of the January 6th defendants who did not engage in violence against the cops, 
And let's be clear, the violence was not, it was not lethal violence. They did not beat Sicknick to death with a fire extinguisher, which was reported ad nauseum in the very beginning of this. It was constantly, oh, they beat Sicknick to death, which was a horrible thing. And I remember when I heard that report, thought, oh my gosh, well, what are these guys doing? Of course, total lie, as we find out. But any of the non-violent January 6th defendants, to me, they're political prisoners. And when you hold somebody for months at a time in solitary confinement, in special administrative segregation, or whatever they're calling it in the D.C. gulag that they're operating, and they haven't actually hurt anyone, you have to wonder, what, what can we call this other than political prisoners? I mean, I think that is the accurate term. It certainly is the accurate term. One of the things that I was thinking when Tucker was airing the part about the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, who became kind of the face of the whole thing, at least in the mainstream media's uh, narrative that they were perpetuating, is when they were when they were showing this video of him just like basically powling around with these Capitol Police officers. They were trying to open doors for him. They were walking next to him. They weren't doing anything. They even tried to verbally tell him, hey, hey, dude, you can't be in here, let alone restraining him or being more forceful. They were very casual. Their demeanor was very unthreatened. I thought to myself, was this video footage used during his trial? Because he's in prison right now. He was sentenced to four years in prison. He is currently incarcerated. And this is in my opinion, exculpatory evidence to the extreme. I'm not sure how he could have been convicted given this evidence, especially when he said, he said, listen, I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to be in there because police officers were opening doors for me. How can you sentence a man to four years in prison, make him the face of this so-called deadly insurrection that wasn't deadly and wasn't an insurrection when this video footage exists? Yeah, there are, there are people, uh, you know, MSNBC hosts or analysts or, I guess, a- analysts, you know, uh, commentators. Uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, as you may recall, said uh, we should shoot people like like uh, Chansley. And, I mean, not only is that horrific, but, but also when you think about how Ashley, Ashley Babbitt was shot, I mean, that woman was murdered. And they made it. They made it go away effectively from a legal from the legal side of things. The system made it go away because if people realize that they just that someone opened fire on these protesters, you would say, really, this is the protest that they open fire on? They just start shooting people? Yeah, I find it really strange that one of the only places on the Capitol that doesn't have multiple ang- angles of camera surveillance is outside the Speaker's Lounge. That seems really shady to me, and I don't know if this is just another level of security that we're not supposed to know about, that it's a different camera system, or why would there be a blind spot outside of the speaker's lounge? That's where the shooting of Ashley Babbitt happened, and that's why we didn't have video footage, why Tucker couldn't air any footage of it, because he doesn't have it, because that's a blind spot in the Capitol, and that seems really suspect to me. I, I, Everything else that we've seen makes me... 100% sure that the narrative coming from the mainstream media at the January 6th committee about what happened to her, that she was threatening someone's life and that the police officer essentially acted justly in his use of lethal force makes me sure that that's incorrect. But how are we ever supposed to prove this if there's a blind spot in front of the speaker's lounge? Is that, am I wrong here? Is that strange? It's only strange if you think that the two cameras outside of Epstein's cell malfunctioning when he was supposed to be under 24-7 surveillance and kept <laughs> You know, that they just have, and the guards were asleep, and the cameras malfunctioned, you know, and the first person to ever commit suicide in the Manhattan Correctional, Federal Correctional Facility just happened to be a guy with a Rolodex full of names of people. You know, I don't know. If you think one is strange, Liz, I, I think you can think, I think the other one looks a little strange, too. I, I do think that that's a, a fair thing to 
um, point out. I, I want to ask you about a, a story um, that that you've been shedding a lot of a, a lot of light on out of Ohio at an elementary school and students there who well we'll get to this the students who were who were made to pledge allegiance to Black Lives Matter. I want you to tell everybody about that story. So, Liz, tell everybody about this story um, The out of the elementary school in Ohio. Tell everybody what happened. Yeah, so this happened about an hour and a half north of where I grew up. I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio, and at an elementary school in Springfield, Ohio. This elementary school is called Kenwood Elementary School. People in Ohio are probably going to be familiar with this. There was video footage that was uh, requested based on based on anecdotal reporting video uh, footage that was requested by the local affiliate that showed several black students at this school keep in mind the background of the story is it is an elementary school meaning this is not 17 and 18 year old thugs who are still in high school these are small children several black students at this elementary school were caught on camera taking white students on the playground outside physically assaulting them throwing them to the ground and punching them in the head, making them kneel and then pledge allegiance to Black Lives Matter, saying those words, Black Lives Matter. The videos of this are obviously horrible. There is not audio, but you can plainly see what's going on here. Thankfully, police are pressing charges here. And when I saw this, I thought, probably the same as everyone else thought, I thought, well, this is truly horrendous. It's so despicable to think of this happening to children. But my first thought was, it's shocking to me that this kind of violence happens in an elementary school. It seems to me that, you know, I'm not to date myself, not to sound too old here, but it seems to me that when we would hear, hear stories back from my day about violence in school, it usually was in schools um, in the inner city. It was usually in lower income areas where there was a, a higher crime rate. And it was usually 16, 17, 18 year old men who were committing the violence in this school. And I thought, why is this happening out of an elementary school? So I ponder this, I, I, I watched this video about a hundred times and I think to myself, you know what the conservative movement, including myself, Maya culpa here, has missed, as we've missed the manifestation of critical race theory when it comes to black students, right? So we constantly talk about critical race theory in our schools and country, how it's this poisonous ideology that tells white children that they're inherently racist based on the color of their skin, not based on their thoughts or their actions, but just based on the fact that they're white and therefore they're enjoying privileges that have been built on the shoulders of white supremacy before them, this ridiculous notion. And we tell black children through critical race theory that they are fundamentally oppressed and victimized. But, but so often we focus on the false accusation that's levied against the white children that they're told that they're racist. They're told they're evil. They're told they're irredeemable. There's nothing they can do about this. But we forget the impact that this has on black children, that black children are being told through schools by teachers as if it's truth that they're less. They're being told that they're victims. They're being told that they're they're. Uh, being demeaned on this cultural level based on the color of their skin. And this is the outgrowth of that. The outgrowth of that is a almost racial revolution where black children assault white children in the name of Black Lives Matter, which, as we know, is a is an organization built on critical race theory. If we as conservatives don't recognize this, we're going to start seeing this pop up, not just in schools, but in our culture all across the country. What do you think can be done in response to this? I mean, is this a an all-of-the-above effort from parents uh, to teachers to administrators re rethinking the, uh, obviously, getting rid of CRT in schools, but, you know, how do we address this? I just feel like for so many parents uh, out there, I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but there's this sense of, 
okay, so these things are happening. Kids are being told this. White kids are being told this. Black kids are being told this. You know, there are different, different narratives about how they're supposed to think about um, each other and about race relations in America, and it's poisonous stuff. So how do we change that? Like, what is what is changing that actually look like? Well, I think there's a cultural change, and then there's political change, right? Cultural change is if you possibly can homeschool your kids, get them out of these institutions. Don't let them on TikTok. Don't don't send them to public school where this is firmly embedded into, if not the curriculum, then the counselors and the administrators in the idea of right and wrong and justice. Don't send your kid. It's it's too toxic. It's it's not possible for them to go to public school right now and escape this kind of this kind of poison. So homeschool them, pull them out of school. And they will be much better for it. That's sort of the cultural side of things. The political side is we should ban this. I mean, this is racial superiority and racial inferiority ideology. This is something states can ban from public schools. This isn't even controversial to think that it can be banned because critical race theory is not being taught as some abstract idea in public schools. Teachers aren't saying, okay, this is critical race theory and critical race theory teaches A, B, and C. They're teaching it as if it's true. They're teaching it the same that they would teach one plus one equals two, and they don't have any kind of right, any kind of um, any kind of protected privilege that allows them to teach falsehood as truth. You should absolutely ban this. Have you noticed the the trend where uh, we keep at different at different moments when we find what the teaching the teaching curriculum may be at a certain school with regard to CRT? Or, or you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff in the workplace. We find these manuals. We find these these lectures, and so often we hear from the left is, well, that's not really happening, or this isn't really a thing. And then it reaches this critical mass where we've had enough of them over, let's say, like a three month period or a six week period, and they say, yeah, that's right, we're teaching this stuff because this is the truth, and it just feels like it goes through this cycle. Because they don't really want to defend it, but they want to keep doing it. So when we find enough of where this indoctrination is happening, for a moment in time, they'll they'll actually have to say, "Yeah, that's right. This is this is justice. This is truth. This is social justice." But then, as as time passes, they go back to the, "What are you talking about? We're not really." Basically, it's like a a cycle of gaslighting that the left engages in. Yes. That's the exact phrase that I was going to use. Is It's a cycle of gaslighting. They go from gaslighting to digging their heels in. But you can tell, Buck, that it's a farce because whenever there is a state that bans critical race theory from the school curriculum in public schools in the state, like Florida did, you'll hear the left simultaneously claim that they don't teach critical race theory in school, in which case it shouldn't be a problem if it's banned, right? And at the same time, they'll say, <laughs> these bans mean we won't be able to teach the reality of slavery in our nation. So... They're contradicting themselves right there. They're hoping just to distract people and confuse people as they continue to indoctrinate our children. Fortunately, I think the last two years with COVID, as brutal and as tyrannical and as damaging as they were, I mean, they really did open parents' eyes to what's going on in the school system. And parents on the left and the right, it's not just a a purely partisan divide, don't like what's been going on and are, are motivated to change it because they don't want their children turned into racists or having their gender mutilated behind their back. Well, yeah, on, on that point, by the way, the other, that, that same cycle I see happening, uh, a little bit of a variation on it, with the transgender agenda for kids stuff, uh, or adolescents, where there's this, 
you know, why are you so focused on it? Why why do you care so much? This isn't happening that much. You're exaggerating. It's not happening everywhere. Why are you saying it? And they act like we're the ones who are obsessed with it when meanwhile they're doing it all over the place. I mean they actually this is happening in states all across the country and in institutions all over. They're pushing this in different hospital systems, they're pushing this in different school systems. And of course there's the you know, hairy middle-aged men dressing up like women and putting fishnets and thongs on and, and shaking their behinds in front of small children. And somehow we're supposed to be okay with this, which of course is completely insane, and we're not okay with this. But they do the same thing. They push, and when we notice what they're pushing, it's why are you why are you so obsessed with it? Why do you notice that? Yeah, well, let's be very clear about one thing. The left with their LGBTQ plus agenda never wanted equality. They never wanted tolerance. They never wanted to simply be included in polite society and otherwise mind their own business. That was always just a camouflage to trick well-meaning but naive conservatives into shrugging their shoulders and being like, okay, sure, we'll allow gay marriage. But that was never the true intention of the lobby. The true intention of the lobby, I mean, it's an ideology, right? It's not just a sexual orientation, as they would have you believe. The LGBTQ plus um, lobby is an ideology that wants to force you and I not just to tolerate it, not just to celebrate equality under the law, but to celebrate the ideology. And the ideology is queer theory. It's no coincidence that critical race theory and the transgender stuff surfaced at just about the same time. The, the racial superiority or inferiority stuff that's taught to kids in school, the, the foundation, the underpinning of that, the ideological underpinning is critical race theory. Just like the transgender stuff that's taught in school, the ideological underpinning of that is queer theory. It's intentional because critical race theory first comes in and destroys the sort of inherent identity of a child saying, hey, you, you should hate your parents. You should hate your grandparents. Everything of who you are based on the color of your skin is wrong and evil and you can't redeem yourself. And so it creates this identity crisis, quite literally, in children and then in swoops queer theory saying, actually, your identity doesn't have to be tied to an immutable characteristic. You can redeem yourself if you separate your identity from your essence. If you choose a neo-Marxist transgender ideology, then you become a victim instead of being the oppressor in this whole system. So it's so messed up, but it's not a coincidence that they surface at the same time because one without the other wouldn't truly both destroy children and simultaneously transform them into Marxist revolutionaries. So you're a woman. I'm not. What do you think when somebody who is as not a woman as I am decides maybe a couple of months ago that he is in fact now a she and a woman and wants to lecture the world. I mean, I'm not even talking about people who just do this privately, but want to go out on TikTok and, and interview, say, the President of the United States and explain their their womanhood to people like you who are an actual woman. What's that like? Yeah, it's insulting. It's demeaning. You're talking about Dylan Mulvaney, the TikTok star. What does he have, like 10 million, 10 million followers on TikTok? Yeah. Went so viral with his Days of Girlhood series that President Biden invited him to the White House. And um, Dylan Mulvaney got President Biden to say that he doesn't think that, that states should have the right or parents should have the right to decline uh, gen gen bodily mutilation surgery in the name of gender ide ide ideology and identity. It's really awful. It, it really does erase it really does erase women. There's sort of a, a funny thing going around on Twitter 
in uh, since International Women's Month started in March, whatever that is supposed to be. And the the spokespeople for a couple of these organizations are actually transgender, meaning born male now dress as women and call themselves by women's names, but still men, of course. And it's funny because International Women's Month has become Women Plus Month, like LGBTQ added a plus for all the other all the other identities and ideologies. The idea of being a woman has become woman plus. So uh, my friend James Lindsay likes to say the future is not female. The future is female plus where biological men who dress as women have taken over, taken over the roles and the achievements and the spaces of actual, actual women. It's funny that the left who claims to be a champion of women uh, latches onto this. Yeah. I just, I know that if I were to say, want to give a, uh, a public lecture, if I said I self identify as a, like a, as a Hispanic American. I mean, I, I am not, and I do not. But if I were to say that and say on, on a day, you know, Cinco de Mayo is not really a, that big of a day for the uh, Latino community in this country. But um, if I were to pick a day and say, well, let's say it's Latino Appreciation Month, we'll just, which might even be a thing. I don't even know. And I went around saying, speaking as a Latino, here's what I think. People would rightly both be they they would think it was bizarre and they would be like offended. That's just really weird, right? Why? But in in this case, it's supposed to be wonderful that somebody who's been a woman for never mind that they're not actually that Dylan Mulvaney is not actually a woman, been a woman for a couple of months. Like maybe maybe learn you know a woman in quotes. Maybe learn a few things before you're going around telling everybody about womanhood. But even you know that's obviously piling crazy atop crazy. I mean, the stereotypes that Dylan Mulvaney traffics in are actually really insulting like that you prance around in a sports bra on high heels in the middle of a field doing your blush in a high falsetto voice yeah. and that you cried sending an email all of these different things are actually like sexist negative stereotypes that that yes. have been trotted out against women and yet he he's embracing them pretending that that's what makes him a woman listen i i'm actually not trying to personally demonize dylan mulvaney i feel very sorry for him i think that criticism against him is certainly warranted and even harsh criticism because he's he's merged his personal psychiatric disorder his personal mental health struggle with political activism and therefore political activism is always you 100 okay to criticize but on a personal level like these people need help these people are suffering from serious mental disorders, and we as a society are harming them further by indulging them. Yeah, well, at some point, you either speak the truth about who Dylan Mulvaney is and to the mental health issues that are clearly on display, or you have very little argument to deploy in defense of why a 14-year-old shouldn't get puberty blockers. That, that this, this is where we actually have yeah. to understand that the, the battle goes next. It's not just like, oh, this is somebody who's an adult and it's fine and they're doing their thing. No, the same ideology and the same agenda is used to convince, as you know now, that the the thing that I, I want to talk about the medical community, scientific community, World Health Organization in a second. I just before we get to the WHO pandemic treaty, which I know you've been diving deep into, uh, the fact that you have doctors going along with the assigned at birth gender thing, right? Like, the, the most basic thing in the world when a baby's born is, you know, the doctor holds the baby up or whatever, looks at the parts and says, it's, you know, it's these parts or it's those parts assigned gender at birth. And they have they have people with MDs now that go along with this stuff, and, and they should be ashamed of themselves. I want to ask you the WHO in a second, but first, the uh, a word from our sponsor, the Tunnel the Towers Foundation. Tunnel the Towers Foundation has been honoring America's heroes ever since the tragic events of 9-11. 
The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of Gold Star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year, and more than 1,500 are. All right, Liz, health organization pandemic treaty. A lot of these things, I hear any of these things, and I think, hmm, I don't know, you put them together, I'm worried. What's going on? Yeah, those are three words you never want to hear together. World Health Organization pandemic and treaty. It's a recipe for disaster. So negotiators from the Biden administration last week traveled to Switzerland to negotiate what is called the zero draft of a pandemic accord. That's what the World Health Organization is calling it because they're trying to avoid using the word treaty because if it were a legitimate treaty, it would need to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. There's nothing the Biden administration wants less than to put this in front of a vote um, in the United States Senate. So the World Health Organization is calling it a pandemic accord. The Biden administration sent negotiators to Switzerland and along with other member states of the World Health Organization, they approved this zero draft. It's the rough draft of this pandemic accord. What this pandemic accord does is it centralizes a response to future pandemics. And before a pandemic even happens, it gives the World Health Organization the unilateral power to declare a global pandemic emergency. So say we have another virus that leaks from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Say we have another virus that was funded by Fauci. Say we have another virus that was tinkered with, with gain-of-function experiment or directed evolution experiments, if you want to use the words of Pfizer. And that becomes, that, that it becomes unleashed on the world somehow. The World Health Organization, and not the U.S. government, the World Health Organization and not the CDC, the World Health Organization and not state governors would have the power to declare over the United States a pandemic emergency. Once they have done that, once they have declared unilaterally this emergency in our sovereign territory, then they get to decide the political response. Not just the medical response, that too, but the political response. They get control over lockdowns, over forced masking, potentially over vaccine mandates. They get the first and authoritative stance on what kind of therapeutics are used, what kind of supplements are recommended, whether a vaccine is developed in order to combat this particular virus that the World Health Organization has declared constitutes a global pandemic emergency. This pandemic accord, which is not a legitimate treaty because Biden refuses to have the Senate ratify it, actually takes control of our country in this event. It, it, it usurps our sovereignty, our representative republic, and gives it to a World Health Organization that right now is controlled by a man named Dr. Tedros, who himself is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. But there has rarely been anything that the Biden administration has done, and they've done a lot of bad things that's as dangerous as this. Do you think that the Fauci's, Tedros, go down the list, Rochelle Walensky, Borland in the mix here, that was involved at a high level with the COVID policies and response that were really, it was really globalized as we know, right? There was a reason why you had similar things going on here and in Australia and in Europe and in South America and you go all over the place. Do you think they think they, they did a good job or do you think they don't care because they should be in charge no matter what so results don't matter? I don't think they were measuring on the same standards that we are. They weren't looking for a balance between protecting public health and using government resources to respond to an emergency and balancing that or marrying that with the civil rights of Americans and the limited power 
of our government as codified in our constitution and in state constitutions. They're not, they're not judging themselves by the same standard. They're technocrats. They think that our representative republic is bad. They don't like our form of government. They think that we should be ruled by the fiat of the the so-called experts. I'm putting that in quotation marks. They think that they know better than we do. They think they should control our lives. I think they're delighted with how the pandemic response went. They successfully coerced the federal government to issue vaccine mandates on a vaccine that they rushed through that had no efficacy, that had a harmful side effect profile against a virus that wasn't equally harmful for every single person in our country, in fact, wasn't harmful to the vast majority of people, had a very high survival rate, really just harmed vulnerable populations like overweight people and extremely elderly people or immunocompromised people. They're delighted that they were able to squash free speech and shutter people's businesses, take hold of the economy in the name of an emergency that they instilled fear in us and that in our fear, we willingly surrendered our our freedom, our, our individual sovereignty, our state sovereignty. This is exactly what they've been trying to do slowly, inch by inch, grain by grain for decades. And yet here we have this pandemic, this COVID-19 virus unleashed around the world, and they were able to do it in a matter of months. That's how they are grading themselves. That's why they are unashamed of all of, all of our concerns, like our businesses being closed down and our children being masked at school and all of the rest of it. They're delighted because they finally got what they want, which is all the power. I want to ask Liz Wheeler about how Liz Wheeler got into this whole game of trying to save America and uh, the Liz Wheeler show and all the other things you're up to. So now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is courageously helping us to keep our show going here. So it's wendyslimited.com. wendyslimited.com. So wendyslimited.com. wendyslimited.com has all the hottest new styles and couture trends and latest boutique women's apparel and shoes and heels and flats and all kinds of just wonderful stuff. You have hives and honey uh, jewelry on moi. It's been a favorite lately. And we have, of course, Windsor crystal uh, lamps. I have one uh, one in stock in particular that has been a favorite. So wendyslimit.com is always open to help you get everything you need. Awesome Prada purse that we uh, saw that, that uh, Wendy's Limited just put up. So we have to think who out there wants to get incredible Prada fashion couture. You know that um, from what I hear, they're a favorite of many, many ladies out there, many women all over the place. In fact, I think you cannot find a single family member or wife or sister or aunt or grandmother or loved one or girlfriend or what have you that uh, does not love Prada purses. So if you want to be totally awesome, you have to eventually come to grips with wendyslimited.com. Wendy's Boutique Limited has all the hottest new styles and latest women's apparel, everything you need to be totally awesome. If you're a woman or if you have a a woman who's someone that you love, and of course we all love women because they're just so awesome. That's why Wendy's Limited.com is so successful. So go check out Wendy's Boutique. 
Wendy'sLimited.com is the only place to go. And we have to recommend she's been totally 100% awesome to us and generous. So we are always going to be buying our jewelry, fine jewelry, gold, gold and silver jewelry. And all of our best boutique, couture, and designer trends are we're going to go to Wendy'sLimited.com. So check out Wendy's Boutique Limited. come from? How did all this happen? How do, you, how do you get, you know, a massive uh, Twitter following, digital show, TV, uh, podcast following? How did the masses come to learn of Liz Wheeler? Tell me the story. Oh my goodness. Well, it seems like it's been a long time in the making, but I really wasn't that interested in politics until very late in high school. Um, I, I started following the presidential primary in 2007. This is right before Barack Obama was elected. And I remember this this newcomer, Obama, to the national stage. Sure, he was a senator, but he was a newbie. I remember watching him compared to Hillary Clinton. Everyone thought Hillary Clinton was the shoe-in for the nominee. And she, of course, was, was not. And the moment that he won that primary, the moment he became the nominee, I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, all of the things that are important to me are at risk. If this man becomes president, I'm going to do what I can to fight for our country. And when I say that, it's it's a little bit ironic because when I said do what I can to fight for our country, in high school, I was diagnosed with a really serious uh, autoimmune disorder, autoimmune disease. And the reason that I was able, the reason I'm able to do what I do today is because of the free market economy, because we had my family, my parents specifically, my mom and dad had the freedom to, my dad operates a small business. He was able to save and invest his money how he saw fit versus the government telling him what he needed or not. And when insurance companies didn't cover the treatments that I needed to manage my autoimmune disease, he was able to use his money in the free market to get me the, the, the alternative treatments that weren't offered by big pharma that enable me to live the life that I live today. And I, I, I was sitting there watching this primary, watching them talk about socialized medicine, watching them talk about high taxes, watching them talk about Barack Obama and the Democrats, about all of these big government policies that I realized it was, the, it was kind of like that aha moment for me that, wow, the Democrats aren't just immoral when it comes to abortion. They're not just immoral when it comes to uh, gay marriage. They actually threaten the life that I have been able to enjoy. So from there, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on from the left and from the right, educating myself. I wrote a book in college um, with a, a group of young conservatives from around the country about why we are young conservatives. I served in local government in college as well. I was a commissioner on the Board of Zoning Appeals, um, which was just as, just as funny and quirky as it sounds. After college, I, um, I worked actually for a veteran advocacy company, not, not in politics at all, but I was always itching to get back in politics. Kind of wanted to be a speechwriter, but came to the conclusion that if I wanted what I wrote to be read in the way that I wrote it, then I would need to be the one that presented it myself. Um, because you know how speechwriters, they make these beautiful documents and then politicians rip them up and tear them up. So I ended up getting into media. If anyone's listening and they're a young, young man or woman, college age, or maybe just in their 20s, and they were to ask you, how do I get into this game? Should I get into this game? What would you say? 
I would say yes, if you have the fire in your belly to actually fight the fight, and if you are well-equipped to do it. Don't get into this game for fame and fortune. Get into it because you want to be a public servant, because you know this buck, of course, but it's not always pretty. You know, you get threats against your family. Your reputation gets unfairly smeared. It's a grind to work in the, to work in media and to work in politics. So um, all the fame and all the glory and all the money does not take that away. Um, if you want to get into this business, especially media, first, educate yourself. I'm not talking about going to college. I'm talking about study, read everything, every book that you can get your hands on. Because what we don't need in the conservative movement or in politics in general is just another person bloviating another, another bit of hot air. We need people who not only understand what they stand for, but they understand why they believe what they believe and are unflappable in their principles. If you feel like that is you to a T, then please come and join us. We can always use more young people um, in the conservative movement, in media, who are committed truly to what makes our nation great. But um, think very carefully about what you're getting yourself and your family into, because it's not always a bed of roses. I usually ask, especially if it's uh, people from former intelligence community, and I was never in the military, but a fair number of people from the military side, because it's a some similarities in the transition of being military, going civilian, to being a former CIA person and going uh, civilian, uh, civilian, uh, you know, just working for the federal government in that kind of realm and capacity. And I always tell them, I'm like, do you have a wife? Do you have a mortgage? Do you have debts? <laughs> Think about all those questions first before you start a media career. And then, do you love this? Do you love the work? Meaning the, the research, the writing, the... You love it so much that you're willing to do it a lot of the time for free, do it a lot of the time for very few people watching or caring, and being told the whole time while you're not making much money and not a lot of people are seeing you that you're probably not that good at this and maybe you should do something else. And if the answer to all those questions and is, is I love it anyway, I don't care, great. Come join the circus. That's what I usually tell people because... The first few years usually suck. <laughs> not not suck in terms of like it's not amazing and important and cool and great, you know, for the work. But I think people see like in like in everything, people see the end product and they think, oh, that would be awesome. Like I want to have a show. And as you know, from having a show for years at One yeah. America, now a show of your own. It's like having a show. I think when I started radio, I I'm not I'm not actually guessing. I, I had like uh, well, it was less than twenty people listen to my first radio show. Three hours. Hey, less that's than 20 people. people. Look at that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I was like, because, and I knew that number, yeah, by yeah. the way, because it was streaming, it was digital, so we could actually see it on a website. It wasn't a terrestrial radio show. So that's what I always tell people. But I mean, I love it, and you love it too, and here we are. So, you know, there is, I'm like, I, I agree with you. The more the merrier, as long as people know what the merriment actually looks like, especially in the early stages. Liz Wheeler, everybody, check out her show. Um, where, where's the best place for people to go to see the Liz Wheeler show? You can go to LizWheelerShow.com, but it's everywhere you find your podcasts. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Rumble. Uh, look me up, Liz Wheeler Show. Subscribe. Let me know what you think. Uh, so that was very encouraging to think that you can really make it big even though you only have 20, 20 people watching or whatever. That's pretty uh, encouraging, right? The more the merrier, so, so be it. But we had to just put on the... Clay and Buck show have just did uh, us the service of interviewing Liz Wheeler, and we just found that her like commentary was just 
really insightful and hard-hitting and courageous and you just you have to look for that nowadays because the the mk ultra brainwash towards this transgendering perversion throughout the the school system and throughout elementary schools and library a ch- transgender story at time at the library or whatever and of course you kirk cameron went down to the same library and tried to read a a book about jesus and his white horse and the uh, the whole library system flipped out and tried to throw him out so that, that's that's what you have now and the same thing over there at the church in Canada where the, the pastor tries to be like, don't bring that transvestite dancer into my church here in front of my kids and my, the children. And then they, they actually physically threw him out the door. You know, you can have the video of that. So it's just a wholesale a mutilation, a actual literal surgical mutilation up at Boston College and Boston University or what have you up there. Right? The kids uh, at the kids' hospital, right? They're going to be like, yeah, we'll chop your kid's wiener off. He's uh, 12 or whatever. That's fine. We'll just do a little uh, little chop chop in the surgery and uh, sew up a little yeah, mannequin type vaginal canal or something for him there so he can pretend to be, a, we'll give him some hormone blockers so he can just not develop right, deform his uh, his natural growth into something a little different so he can feel more like a girl. Or, so that is getting to be putrefying and disgusting. You see it's all up into medicine. So, you know, who can trust medical doctors and hospitals. That's why I've always decrying this whole establishment of our understanding of your local general hospital, right? Is that the old soap opera? At the old general hospital down the street, and it just serves everybody. And, you know, it's like an institution. No one really questions what it is or how it got there or how it got to to have medicine. Of course, the word, the very word medicine was developed by uh, different techniques and health techniques of the Medici, right? The, the Medici were the aristocracy, the princes of, of Europe, and of Italy, and uh, of money. They were the lords of money, of all the lords, right? So they were the big kingpins of, of uh, money and, and, and the foreign and the foreigns, right? And so ultimately they developed the idea of medicine, and it was called medicine after the Medici, right? So you're going to have the whole Medici dynasty, the royalty right there. And, and the same thing goes with the hospitals. Like down, the whole idea of hospitals with, has to do with hospitality, has to do with hospitalizing people who were on their way to be pilgrimaging into Israel. And they had the knights who were hospital or knights. So this is a whole legacy. They were like the Templar knights. The Templars were dedicated to guarding the passageway to the temple and so the pilgrims could go to the temple of God or whatever, where the temple remains were anyway. And the hospital or knights were dedicated to hospitalizing or giving hospitality to all those who traveled to the Holy Land and, and who would be very hungry and hot and, and need help from the Saracens and the uh, Islamic raiders and so on and so forth. And this hospital or knights defended those pilgrims. And so the, the idea of this hospitalization comes from the hospital or knights who developed medicine over the course of time. It's, it's something that we have to understand that hospitals are there, are there to implement the edicts of the World Health Organization. They're not there just to help you get free medical care. You know, that, that's just a process of bankrupting America. The fact that millions of illegal immigrants and just anybody could just walk into the ER and, and have some really outstanding, life-changing, life-saving service done in a cast or whatever and get sent away with, without having to pay a dime, right? It's just it's a process of bankrupting America. But the, the power and the control, the high-level administration and high-level the whole big hospital, right? You get big tech, you get to have the big hospital, right? So the big hospital industry and the medical industrial complex, if you want, comes into place here to establish what is the law when it concerns you know, who, what is health, 
what is COVID? What is a vaccine? What what does the va- term vaccine really really mean? And that's why we, it gets all into Fauci at this point. It gets all into this process of of seeing that the entire apparatus of the, the medical industrial complex has been totally uh, deformed, and it's just been an, a hierarchy of power from the beginning. And so, at this point, you really can't trust it. I don't trust doctors or the whole facility of so, so-called the medical industry and all of its you know the, the preponderance of supposed legitimacy it's supposed to have. Right, the doctor, the whole medical industry is supposed to be a legitimate thing, but now they're up there doing transgender surgeries on fucking twelve-year-olds. So they're 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 jokes. They're they're monsters. They're they're uh, like they're like uh, like the Nazi doctors, right? Who uh, performed experiments on uh, on children, right? Like that, that's it's 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 kind of like it's similar to that. It's the same thing with the the health pass that you had to have in, in Nazi Germany. You had to have the health pass. So right, these are like Doctor Mengele's right running around, right? Trying to perform transgender, they're, they're trying to talk your kid into being a transgender in the classroom, in the kindergarten, right? They're down there in the kindergarten, and they're like, "Oh, what did little Billy say? Oh, little Billy says he wants to be little Sally now. Oh, he's a transgender." So they, they just send him on the pathway, and all of a sudden, your kid comes home and starts saying that his name is Sally. And of course, if you do anything about it, especially like in Canada, if you, if you interfere and try to like take your kid away, but holy crap, they're turning my little kid into a little girl or whatever it is. Then all of a sudden. Uh, you know, when the, when the brainwash tries to affect and absorb and, and subsume your child into this ideological morass and poison, and when you try to save your child, they lock you up and, and put you away, and then they force, they, they send your kid away to a home, and they can be force-fed transgender ideology. And of course, but later on when they're older and they're 20, they'll be a, a trans, they'll be a detransition, right? They'll be like, oh my god, I transitioned, but I have to detransition because I realized when I chopped off my wiener it was a big mistake, and I, I just want to go back to being a man now. I just heard that article. I just heard, I just listened to an entire article about a guy who was transitioning and, and had to detransition, right? There's a detransition movement. So they're ramping up the process of transitioning your child into becoming some kind of monstrosity, and then, you know, later on they'll have to figure out how to deal with that for the rest of their lives. When, of course, when you do this surgery on your genitals, your genitals don't feel sensitivity anymore. The kind of like sensitivity that, you know, is congenial for a sexual relationship with a spouse that allows for fulfillment in your life. When you, when you mutilate your sexual parts and they're numb and they're no longer have the, the, the actual the tissue or the actual nerve cells or the actual systems they need in place and, and, and the veins and all the, the blood flow, the thing they need to actually enjoy having an orgasm as an adult has been completely ruined because they were brainwashed into becoming a transgender uh, in, in middle school, right? So that's what we're having here in this entire culture war. is It's, a, it's an existential war uh, of annihilation against the, the American way of life, against our principles as a democracy, as, as like a nation that's dedicated to popular government, popular democracy, so that the people are the ones who are empowered to lead and be in charge of the direction of the policy and the lawmaking of our country through legislature and all that. That's been completely undermined, and it's been completely despoiled by the process of technocratically uh, cheating on the elections. And of course, you know, these Dominion voting machines, in my opinion, we can sue everyone in the world they want with billion dollar lawsuits, but it's, it's obvious that their machines allow for the dissimulation of information that's so confusing and vote tallies that are so scrambled uh, and allow for, uh, you know, supervisors to come in and, and to allocate votes here and allocate votes there and, and do all this crap and inside these machines that completely adulterate and, you know, and obliterate our elections into uh, complete nonsense so that, 
you know, we have to uh, go back and just rethink the way that we're doing democracy in this entire country because it's it's under a total onslaught, a total war of, of annihilation against our way of life, like I said. So once again, this was just another introduction to the many voices out there, and I'm going to continue to work hard to show you that in America, we have the, the deepest thinkers and the most powerful intellectual and academic scholarship and the most tel- intelligent, deep mind uh, awareness uh, that's being cultivated in this country. And you can see that we have the smartest women in the entire world, let alone you know, the most beautiful, which is important, and the most athletic, which we, we, we activate and, and value and look you know, to push our, our, our young women to be, be more athletic. But the most important thing here is intellectually, we are cultivating the, the most intelligent and most highly educated class of women that the world has ever, ever seen in history, in the history of the world. So that can't be understated enough. We were getting used to it. We're just kind of, we've gotten, you know, kind of accustomed to this wealth of empowered, ingenious womanhood, right, that we're dealing with all around us here in America. And sometimes it might even be, uh, you know, womanhood and intelligence that's used to a wicked extent, it's used to to pervert and to go against America, like you can see, even even Hillary Clinton uh, is another example of, uh, even though, albeit a very poor example of you know a, a woman who used her power for the wrong things and, and for you know, I mean she obviously is a woman who is powerful enough to see people murdered. I mean, you know what I mean? She she drops the hatchet on on Seth Rich. So the, this is the kind of culture of womanhood we have in this country, and uh, we have to recognize it and see that. It's that the power elite and the uh, the move towards that intelligentsia and the direction of the country is going to be impacted by the thought leaders who are women in a way that we've never seen before in history. So that's the point of, uh, of making this. So I just wanted to thank you just for coming back and joining us with uh, the syllabus journal entry, um, Women Leading America's Intelligentsia. And I really appreciate the, the, the support that we've got. And uh, I hope you guys will take a chance to go in there and uh, support us on Cash App, Looking Glass Forum Cash App, or give us an email over at, uh, at the email that you'll see in the link of the show notes there. Just hit us up, let us know what you think, and, you know, give us a little support over there. And I thank you once again for coming back to, to join us. We hope you have much more content coming up soon. Yeah, I keep falling